0: Let's meet today's contestants, a test prep instructor
1: from Buford, Georgia, Andrew Moore.
0: Is that
1: you,
2: Andrew? What on earth are you doing? Andy, I don't care what you do.
3: Hi, everyone. This is the 20th episode of Andy's Treasure Trove, the podcast in which I document and share with you Some of my favorite people, things, places, and ideas. I'm your host, Andy Moore, and I know it may be confusing that I'm calling this episode 19, and I just said that it was the 20th episode, but there's an episode zero. So number 19 is actually the 20th episode, except in leap years during Daylight Savings Time. Well, let's do a little review of the show so far, shall we? On previous episodes I've talked to some of my favorite people, among them Bob Elliott of Bob and Ray, Tom Lehrer, Sarah Schulman, filmmaker Terrence Davies, Guy Madden, astrologer Joanne Brazil, and writer friends like Fenton Johnson and Jim Van Buskirk, painter Don Bacardi, artists Alan Berliner, theater pipe organ wizard Clark Wilson, film critic Leonard Maltin, documentary filmmaker Gary Weinberg, TV personality, Hugh, Chopper King, and many others have chatted and joked around with me on this show. If you haven't already, please listen to past episodes and subscribe via iTunes so you won't miss an episode. Thank you. Uh, Now, a few disclaimers related to the copyrighted material that I'll be featuring on this episode, as well as some thoughts about responsibility in general. These were first aired as part of Episode 3 of Andy's Treasure Trove, and they were recorded while sitting on the beach in Santa Cruz, California, so you'll, you'll hear waves, loud waves in the background. Opinions expressed on Andy's Treasure Trove San Francisco and on andystreasuretrove.com are not necessarily the opinions of Andy Moore, the staff of Treasure Trove Productions, or our guests, except when indicated, all rights are reserved by Andy Moore and Treasure Trove Productions. Any resemblance of characters in this program to real people, living or dead, is purely coincidental. This program may be offensive to some people. Discretion and parental guidance are advised. Certain copyrighted music played on Andy's Treasure Trove is for educational purposes only and is also meant to promote said music to the benefit of the composers and recording artists involved. The awarding of prizes for contests and other promotions is subject to the limited availability of such prizes and substitutions may be made by Treasure Trove Productions at its discretion. Staff and family members of Treasure Trove Productions are prohibited from participating in such contests and promotions and they will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law if discovered to be participating. Any rebroadcast or reuse of this program, in whole or in part, without explicit permission, is also prohibited by law. You have the right to remain silent, and anything you say may be used against you in a court of law. Andy's Treasure Trove, Andy Moore, and Treasure Trove Productions are not responsible for lost or stolen items. This contract limits our liability. Read it. Portions of this program were recorded earlier. Please do not phone in for live discussion. No animals were harmed during the making of this program. Void where prohibited. Check your local listings. Keep off the grass. Your mileage may vary. Well, if you didn't guess, that was another tip of the hat to the comedy team of Bob and Ray. And now, on this episode of Andy's Treasure Trove, episode number 19, I'm sharing something with you that is super special to me. In one word, Sparks. Sparks is the name of a pop duo. At times they've been a band, but now it's just down to the core two brothers named Ron and Russell Male, M-A-E-L. I've been a fan of their music since 1974. I have all their albums, and there are 25 of them. I've seen them in concert many, many times. So without further ado, this is Sparks. I grew up in the 1960s and 70s and listened primarily to the Beatles after outgrowing the Monkees and the Turtles And uh, later I added David Bowie, Donovan, Blondie, Dan Hicks, Leon Redbone, Queen, and guilty pleasure Tammy Wynette to my array of music listened to and music collected. And it was when I was 15 and started listening more closely to recorded music through what was a miracle to me at the time, stereo headphones, not a common thing back then, I began to appreciate musical composition, arrangement, and performance much more deeply because I could hear everything much more clearly. And though I was very active as a photographer and a filmmaker, music became and remains my favorite art form. And I spent many evenings issuing the television shows that the rest of my family was watching and instead listening closely to music and memorizing every melody, arrangement, and lyric. Now, when I was doing this... Just a few miles away from where I lived, the two brothers, Ron and Russell male who were a few years older than I am, were starting to make and record their own music with others under band names like Urban Renewal Project and then later Half Nelson. When I was listening to top 40 hits like Windy by The Association, Light My Fire by The Doors, and lots and lots of Beatles hits, Ron and Russell were producing music like this, their first recording in 1967, Computer Girl. And by the way, though Kraftwerk's 1981 Computer World was the first song thought to use computer in the title, this actually may be the first use of the word computer in a song title. And 14 years earlier... Computer Girl. some other short excerpts of demo recordings that sparks recorded before they were sparks after hours in a dog bed factory in the san fernando valley we're going to hear bits from arts and crafts spectacular big rock candy mountain johnny's adventure and chili farm farney
2: heart back, my soul as well, and you can keep the dough. These stranger women prove to be the wrong type of work for me. I shall sit with my heart and sit with my soul and be content to starve.
3: Flash forward now to late 1974, when I was 18 and living on the 10th floor of Tioga Hall, my freshman dormitory at the University of California at San Diego. Late one evening, I was listening to Los Angeles radio station KMET-FM's concert show Saturday night at the concert. I had tuned in after they'd already introduced the band, so I didn't know who it was. And this is what I heard.
2: Elephants and turkey doggers This town ain't big enough for the both of us And it ain't me, who's gonna live? <laughs> a a mystic And when this do a bit, You are a kick,
3: That was a live in-studio performance of This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us by Sparks in 1974 when they were touring to support their third album called Kimono My House. Hearing it by chance that night was the beginning of my 43-year-long love affair with them. Here's the album version of that same song, a song that grabbed the attention of myself and all the guests on this episode of Andy's Treasure Trove, and a song that went all the way up to number two on the British pop charts. I even enjoy listening to that track backwards, which reveals what a Sparks geek I really am. The Sparks fan club, in fact, was the first and only fan club I ever joined. I'm fan club number A424, by the way. I've seen Sparks in concerts many, many times. Uh, I even used one of their songs on the soundtrack of one of my very first 16mm films. Don't tell them. And uh, though there was a long middle period where I didn't buy Sparks albums, because I didn't like them, now I have all 25 and I treasure them all. A love affair that had a downturn in the middle has turned in its maturity into unconditional love. In this very special episode, I'm assisted by a very special cast of characters. Tosh Berman, the publisher of a book of Sparks song lyrics called In the Words of Sparks, and the author of another book called Sparks-tastic, 21 Nights with Sparks in London, about his experiences at Sparks' monumental 21-album concert series, The Sparks Spectacular. Eric Theiss, an avid and articulate Sparks fan, a software engineer and web cartographer, who performs with experimental choirs and remains committed to analog, still-and-motion picture-making. I've known Eric a long time. He's a great guy. Next, we have Laurie Cohen, the director of the Mill Valley Philharmonic, a wonderful symphony orchestra just north of San Francisco, where I live. I gave Lori her first taste of Sparks, and she comments on two of their songs from her perch on the classical podium. Lori also plays bass in a band, and she's not too highfalutin to love pop music. Next, Ron Mail, the elder half of the pop duo Sparks, its keyboardist and the composer of most of their songs. Russell Mail the younger half of the pop duo Sparks, its vocalist, and the co-composer of some of their songs. If you're a Sparks fan, you might be tempted to skip to near the end of this episode to listen to part one of my interview with Ron and Russell, but let me suggest that you go along for the ride rather than jumping ahead. You'll thank me. Before we get into all the interviews and much more Sparks music, let me try just a little bit to contextualize Sparks, for those who aren't familiar with them, by throwing a few lists of overgeneralized genre labels, influences of theirs, and influences of theirs at you. The music of Sparks spans many genres. Rock, pop, glam rock, art rock, electronica, synth pop, new wave, smart pop, and others. As I mentioned, they've made 25 albums, for all of the major record labels and many independent ones. And they've been compared in various ways to The Beatles, David Bowie, T-Rex, Roxy Music, The Cars, and The Suite. But part of their beauty, a big part of their beauty, is due to the difficulty with which they're categorized. They really are different. Author Daryl easlia in his book about sparks, described them as being, quote, "...a cross between Bobby V and the Mothers of Invention." Or Marlena Dietrich and the Stooges. Or Frank Zappa meets the monkeys. Some of the male's early influences include Elvis Presley, Little Richard, surf music, Link Ray, the Shangri-Laws, and in a much bigger way, the whole British invasion, especially The Who. Ron Mail apparently idolized Pete Townsend and regretted that he couldn't perform the equivalent of Townsend's signature windmill guitar moves on a keyboard. Among the bands that Sparks has had a big influence on, Morrissey and The Smiths, The Sweet, as I mentioned, Pet Shop Boys, Queen, Soft Cell, Franz Ferdinand, Depeche Mode, Faith No More, Cheap Trick, The Quick, Milk and Cookies, I don't even know who that is, Erasure, Bjork, Devo, Andrew W.K., Rita Mitsuko, and Susie and the Banshees, among many others. The male brothers may have, quote-unquote, eccentrified pop, and they may have invented electronica, but those were just a few of the turns in a long, long road that they're still on. Ron retains his iconic, stoic image behind his Roland keyboard, with the label rearranged to spell Ronald instead of Roland, uh, kind of in the vein of a silent film comedian like Charlie Chaplin, a combination Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and Jacques Tati, And Russell voices the music with incredible verve, soaring up and down through multiple octaves at the speed of a gallop. I'd like to play you one track each from their first album, which was first called Half Nelson and then later changed to Sparks, and their second album, A Woofer in Tweeter's Clothing. My favorite track from their first album, which was produced by Todd Rundgren, is actually a slow, moody piece called Fletcher Onorama. Here are some of the lyrics. Fletcher on a Rama, won't you rally round the man who's on a limb? Sing the songs that please him very softly, while we jolt him with a hymn. Please go easy now with him, because this is his final whim. So be sure that the boy don't die before the morn. Fletcher on a Rama, shall we justify the eighty junes you've seen? Since that might be stretching things, we'll merely sing the songs that made you scream. Please, go easy now with him, because this is his final whim, so be sure that the boy don't die before the morn. Intakes and mistakes and lunch pails and headaches were willed to your one living twin. I think that maybe you should have kept half of them. After all, you worked for them. Telecast in fifty states and brought to you by anti-wrinkle dew. That's Fletcher Onorama. See the world now from a different point of view. This is Sparks. Let's run around Second Sparks album, A Woofer in Tweeter's Clothing, was produced by Thaddeus James Lowe of The Electric Prunes, and it leads off with a song called Girl from Germany, about someone dating a girl from Germany and his parents who can't forget World War II. It starts this way. How I wished my folks were gracious hosts and not dismayed, but wit and wisdom take a back seat when you're that afraid. Oh no. Oh no. "'Bring her home, and the folks look ill. "'My word, they can't forget. "'They never will. "'They can hear the storm troops on our lawn "'when I show her in. "'And the Fuhrer is alive and well in our panel den. "'Oh, no, bring her home, and the folks look ill. "'Oh, no, they can't forget that war. "'What a war. "'Oh, no, she's from Germany. "'It's the same old country, but the people have changed.' My word, she's from Germany, with its splendid castles and fine cuisine. Magazine wrote that a woofer in tweeter's clothing featured, quote, a music that is truly without precedent. Woofer might be the first Neo Dada concept album. Not a single recognizable riff on the whole album, not a single hackneyed phrase. A woofer is the weirdest effing album of 1973 from America's most advanced band. Nick Kent of New Music Express wrote that this album, quote, sounded like a musical burlesque of Visconti's The Damned. Sparks' third album, the aforementioned Kimono My House, was made in England for Island Records after the Mail Brothers left Los Angeles for London, and an entirely different backup band to continue chasing after success that had so far eluded them in the USA. Let's listen now to my conversation with Tosh Berman of Tam Tam Books. Tosh, as I mentioned, is a major Sparks fan who wrote a book about going to Sparks' amazing 21-album, 21 21-concert 21 series in London a few years ago called Sparks-tastic. And Tosh also published a book of Sparks' lyrics called In the Words of Sparks. I started by asking him about his own discovery of Sparks.
1: As a teenager, I used to read Melody Maker and New Musical Express. There were the weekly, at the time, or still exists. One of the papers still exists. a weekly newspaper that comes out. Um, in the UK and if you're lucky and you're in the right part of the city this is before the internet of course you can get an old issue of Melody Baker and New Musical Express meaning like a month old and um, at the time of uh, Sparks when they were doing their album Kimono My House which is their official third album it was their first album they did in England with English musicians English producer uh, sort of starting over again uh, I did not know the first two albums at the time. But what struck me about Sparks is I saw a picture of the, uh, of Ron and Russell Mell. And I, I once, I was, I was actually kind of shocked to see this picture. Because at one image, you have a guy who looked like a sort of, the, at the time, a typical lead singer, good looking lead singer, got the longish hair. But then there's a, the other guy. Which, to me, read Hitler, because of the mustache. There's the duality of Charlie Chaplin and Hitler. Even if it's Charlie Chaplin, it's just like totally a new look for that time. And it's a retro look, and it just, so it just totally was a bizarre combination, especially in the, in the context of pop music at that time. Very odd. And, um, so I saw that picture and I said, well, it's gotta be interesting, you know. And then, I read there, I have a new single out in England called This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us. And I thought, wow, that's a great title. And then later, I, I heard, you know, probably like song listings, you know, Thank God It's Not Christmas um, in Heaven or something like that. And, and anyway, all the song titles sounded like so great to me, like little sort of literary little gems. And uh, I thought, well, these guys have to be good. I mean, because it's because of the visuals alone. It can't possibly be bad. So um I bought a British import of Kimono My House before it came out in America. And um, again, the packaging has totally intrigued me, the two Japanese girls in the cover and the kimono thing. At the time, if my memory serves me correctly, um, at least in the British import, no names or titles or lettering on the front cover at all, just those two Japanese girls. So I turn around, and I get the pop singer and Hitler, <laughs> and then three little pictures of the, of the band. So I figure, okay, so the two main guys are separate from the band in a sense. I got the whole sort of story visually. So I took it home, you know, I played the first cut, this town big enough for the both of us, and I went like, oh my God. I never heard anything that futuristic, that modern, or like I think it was came out in nineteen seventy four, like this is nineteen seventy four. And there's and in my life, it's probably like maybe about four or five times I've ever heard a record that like struck me as like this is now. I One was, when I was a child, was um, the Yardbirds, I'm a Man, and Still I'm Sad, the 45. And I'm when I heard I'm a Man, especially the, the rave up lasts like 30 seconds, where it just gets frantic and crazy, I never heard anything like that in my life. Just the feedback, just the tension, the intensity. It's just like a crazy record. And it struck me like... Wow, this is like something new. It was like almost avant garde music that somehow became very accessible to me. And, uh, hearing the first Roxy music album in 1972, same type of reaction, like, I said, I can't believe the weird vocals, the weird croony with the 50s saxophone, but like this sort of electronics, docos, and electronics over this mixture of, um, of sounds. And the Sparks record, this, you know, um, uh, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. struck me the same way. It's like, what is this, operatic? The pacing was incredible. The sound effects, like the gun, you know, the gunshots. Um, and I, I just never heard anything so modern in my life. And it's just the beauty of, uh, Russell Mell's voice, which I couldn't even make a word out. You know, I don't know what he's singing about. It's just like this crazy, frantic, insane, chaotic, beautiful noise that came out of the, you know, the vinyl, the grooves. And, you know, the whole album was that that way to me. It was just like, I heard, I'm like, this is like really original music at the time. This is like something essentially so different from anything else of that time period and all the other bands I like
3: Well, you had the advantage of having seen the album cover. I I read in your book that um, the singer Morrissey first heard them and was sure as he was as sure of anything that that was a female.
1: I think Morrissey was struck up by the originality of, the, of, their, of who they are, what they are, and it was not, nothing like anything else out there, they were like totally new. So you got this new identity, you got the pop singer, a little weird, and there's something weird or dark about him, but then you got the brother, you know, Ron Mel, who apparently wrote the songs at that time period, and uh, who had this really strange <laughs> look, you know, it's not like a teen idol look, it's just this weird, like, why, it's like, very provocative. You know, it's like, I think when John Lennon was quoted as saying, watching Top of the Pops when the sparks were on, like, um, oh my God, Hitler's in the band or something like that, you know. Hitler's on the telly. <laughs> Hitler's on the telly. And you got to think about this, you know, when you think back, you got to think about, okay, so, you know, London got bombed, like, incredibly terrible, you know, because of Hitler. And then 20, uh, what, 30 years later, 50, 30 years later, Hitler comes back as a pop star, And, you know, that had to have some effect of of that generation of of, uh, Londoners at the time, you know, all of a sudden looking at their their son and daughter's record collection and then just come on to my house and there's a picture of this guy with some mustache, you know. I I think most of them probably think it's Hitler. You can't, I don't think you can avoid that. So I was so... I, the prov- the just, it was just a provoking image it was just an incredible image to me and it really really you know it, to this day it has like a um, I never seen anything I never heard anything or seen anything so shocking I did a book of their lyrics with them Uh I feel that Ron Mell and with Russell Mell are the equivalent of of the great American songwriters like, like for instance like Gershwin Cole Porter um 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 Stephen Sondheim, I think they are in that line of songwriting more than like a rock and roll thing. I don't even think of them as rock and roll. I think of them being as um, um, classic American songwriters and I've uh, with little avant-garde isms within their, in their music. I don't think of them as a band or as a rock and roll band at all. Um, they sort of use the medium of rock and roll to do their music, but you know, you get the impression there must be like Theaters, <laughs> they're like plays or musicals they wrote, and they, they they started dealing with that now. But that's what it strikes me as being very theatrical, very kind of narrative-driven um, uh, music. And again, the classic of like Lorenz Hart and Rodgers and Hart, uh, Cole Porter, you know, Irving Berlin, and and uh, and the Gershwin's. They never like trying to be weird for weird's sake. It's definitely like off-kilter stories, like really good, like. American fiction even with European over over overtures or over you know, but but it's just their classic way of looking at um um like whenever Ron Mel wrote about something, I never thought about it it's his life. I always think it's a story he's telling, you know. And it's like the characters are all interesting and it's 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 it's, it's definitely like third person storytelling. It's not like a first person thing. It's not like it's not a blues thing, I got the blues today. It's 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 done in character. And Russell Males a vocalist, is a great, I think, actor. He knows how to portray these different characters.
3: Let's take a short break from this conversation to listen to parts of two other tracks from Kimono, My House. Here in Heaven is a frenetic lament about a Romeo and Juliet couple with a suicide pact, and Juliet cheats. Here are some of the lyrics. Dear, do you often think of me as you overlook the sea? Do I qualify as dearly departed or am I that sucker in the sky, that fall guy for the first and the last time? Juliet, I thought we had agreed. Now I know why you let me take the lead. Up here in heaven without you. I'm here in heaven without you. Up here in heaven without you. It's hell knowing that your health will keep you out of here for many, many years. Do you, do you- Robert Hilburn wrote, Kimono My House is, quite simply, the most invigorating, appealing rock and roll album that I can recall at the moment. It's the kind of joyous, arresting work that makes you want to carry a cassette recorder around with you all the time so that you can play it for friends. Isn't that quaint? Another of my favorite tracks on Kimono My House is called Equator, about another man who's been tricked by his girlfriend by agreeing to meet her at 3 p.m. on March the 10th at the Equator. No further details. Here are some lyrics and then an excerpt from the song Equator. I always felt that I had quite a gift as a judge of human character. This is the day and the time and the place, and I wonder wonder where you are. Surely we said it for 3 p.m. Surely we said it was March the 10th. Equator, Equator, you said you'd meet me there. You must be just around the bend. Well, all of the gifts are now melted or dead, and I'm sorry, sorry in advance. I'll make it up to you, that I can promise you, if I'm just given half a chance. God, you'll be laughing, I look a mess, but you see I've been halfway around this place. Equator, Equator, you said you'd meet me there. Equator, Equator, you said you'd be right there. Equator, Equator. Let's rejoin my conversation with Tosh Berman.
1: So that's like their brilliance, so the fact that they're, they're not really rock band, but they are in a sort of stuck in this commercial or rock and roll format of of, of doing music.
3: Well, they can certainly rock.
1: Yes, they can. <laughs> and,
3: and when they were in, in a period of using a lot of electric guitars, those arrangements were magnificent yeah it's very 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 precise very tight even the guitar
1: is very like you know has zinger ding 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 you know everything's like very precise no waste at all it's just everything's it's more of an orchestra sound i'm just amazed at the skill of the lyrics the lyric writing itself this is why i did the lyrics book with them as well as the incredible melodies i mean they're like they can write melodies like you know, I mean, I don't know. It just comes out of them. It just pours out of them. And it's kind of scary almost to me how, to this day, they come up with a new melody of some sort that's like haunting or beautiful. What I gather what they do is they work consistently, uh, both of them. I mean, I think they meet at a certain time in the Russell studio. They're working on a consistent basis, like six days a week. I think they have like Sundays off or something. So they have an incredible discipline, to, to, to come up with something. Um, I'm going to presume, you know, I, I do know them, but I never actually sat down there and, and talked to exactly what they do because I feel like there's a mystery that they want to keep and they don't volunteer that information, uh, easily. And I respect that. And, um, but they do work like in projects. I mean, they work on, on, on either like a film score in their mind or a, a live theater thing. And, this is what I think excites them. You know, I don't think this writing a song is it. It's like actually making an album as a, as a as a centerpiece for what they want to say at that point in time. Ronald Russell put themselves in that position on a consistent basis. They never do the easy route. I mean, it's kind of crazy they don't do the easy route. Like, why don't just go out and just do a greatest hits show? You know, put the band together, get three guitars, you know, everybody will be happy. You know, I'll do the hits. But they don't they don't think that way. They don't want to do that and they don't um you know the, the this the twenty-one nights, twenty-one shows, what I wrote about, is mind-boggling, genius-like, and insane at the same time. I mean most bands for the last you know, fifteen years, they have one classic album. So they'll do that album from beginning to end. It's not unusual. It's, you know, the big hit album, whatever that is. Sparks could have done that with "This Come On to My House," and everybody thinks it's a classic. Do "Come On to My House," beginning to end, and that's the end of the story. But no, they decided to do every album that way, even the albums that people don't even know or care about, from the beginning to the end. Arrangements actually very close to the recordings. You know, they didn't jazz it up, they didn't put reggae they didn't make it funky. <laughs> it sort of like uh, kept it very, very close to the uh,
3: to the actual recording. And they performed. Each of these twenty-one albums, in its entirety, yeah. on subsequent nights in London, yeah. and every Sparks fan wanted to go. Yes,
1: I would. <laughs> and I
3: know you went, and I'm envious. I want to focus on something and sort of enlarge it. You know, Sparks.
1: I was also quite aware because Sparks is, in a weird way, for forty years, unknown band that that puts out more music than any band ever. You know? <laughs> Yet there's people have a hard time, you know, setting them in place. You know, Sparks have many different type of fans. There's a geeky fan who wants to know every record and you know, all the equipment and that type of stuff. And each band member, you know, one band member is better than the other band member. But there's they also have a following quite uh, 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 in the visual art world or in the literature world. A lot of writers like them a lot. They're always big somewhere on this planet, and they consistently have an audience somewhere in this world. And they go to that to that place to play. A lot of people think they're actually a European band or they're from England, not from uh, Pacific Palisades in uh, Southern California, Los Angeles. So they're, they're, um, they made their own world, you know. And, I, and I, that's another reason why I like them, because I like uh, artists who make their own culture. You know, I like David Bowie for that reason, because there's a whole culture of Bowie. Morrissey is another culture person. There's literature of Wallace Morrissey. There's books that he likes. There's movies that he likes. There's images it's not just Morrissey. It's really a whole world of Morrissey, a whole world of Bowie. And Sparks are, are the same way to me. There's, they represent aesthetic, a style. It's not just guys playing music. It's actually something much more bigger than that.
3: Kimono My House was such a success that Sparks quickly made another album, again in 1974, called Propaganda. Robert Hilburn of the Los Angeles Times said this about Propaganda. A merger of the concepts and vision of the Kinks' Ray Davies, the wall-of-sound production style, without the tape echo, of Phil Spector, and the lavish, peppery arrangement tendencies of Walter Carlos's Clockwork Orange album. Add the basic teenage consciousness of the early Beach Boys and Janet Dean records, plus the energy and exuberance of the early Who. Richard Cromlin of Rolling Stone described Sparks in that era as, quote, Stravinsky and Gilbert and Sullivan reincarnated as a rock-and-roll power trio. One of my favorite cuts on propaganda is called Something for the Girl with Everything, about a mob, some sort of a mobster trying to keep his girlfriend from spilling the beans about his past crimes by keeping her from speaking at all. Here's how it starts out. See? The writing's on the wall. You bought the girl a wall, complete with matching ballpoint pen. You can breathe another day, secure in knowing she won't break you, yet. Something for the Girl with Everything. Have another sweet, my dear. Don't try to talk, my dear. Your tiny little mouth is full. Here's a flavor you ain't tried. You shouldn't try to talk. Your mouth is full. Three wise men are here. Three wise men are here, bearing gifts to aid amnesia. She knows everything. She knows everything. She knew you way back when you weren't yourself. Here's a really pretty car. I hope it takes you far. Hope it takes you fast and far. Wow, the engine's really loud. Nobody's going to hear a thing you say. Something for the girl with everything.
2: Something for the girl with everything.
3: play another little bit of that track a little later when my guest Eric Theiss mentions a bravura keyboard solo that occurs later in that song. The next album Sparks released in 1975 was called Indiscreet and was produced by Tony Visconti, who also produced albums by David Bowie and Mark Bolin, and it reached a new level of complexity and grandeur for Sparks. Jeffrey Morgan of Cheap Thrills Music Magazine in Toronto wrote about this album, Every musical style used during the past 70 years is drawn upon here in one form or another. I've heard the music of the future, and its sparks. Indiscreet was a stylistically diverse album, and it spun quirky narratives with lush arrangements and spun them into gold. When describing, for example, the one about a bomb going off in the lobby of the Paris Ritz Hotel, leaving the hotel manager without hands, but otherwise without complaints, or a young man having a hard time adjusting to the real world of adult women after the so-called happy hunting ground of high school, or a radio commercial selling hope to people in the present day by touting the future. Let me read you some lyrics and play you some short excerpts from three tracks from Indiscreet, Without Using Hands, Happy Hunting Ground, and In the Future. First, Without Using Hands. When the explosion rocked the lobby of the Ritz Hotel, nobody moved for fear of learning that they weren't all that well. Is there anybody missing? Answer only if you're well. Everyone cheered the good fortune, for indeed it turned out well. Only the manager suffered, but at least his face looks swell. The manager's going to live his entire life without using hands.
2: Lovely city, 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 oh, what a lovely city. But he moved for fear of learning that they won't all that well. Is there anybody missing? Answer only if you're well. Everyone's you the good fortune, for indeed it turned out well. Only the manager suffered, but at least his face looks well. The manager's going to live his entire life without using hands.
3: Happy hunting ground, happy hunting ground, they can sort of dance like you do. Happy hunting ground, happy hunting ground, but they just can't last like you.
2: How to say say, it and to offend, you it's okay.
3: "'It's winter. It's raining. You're tired. She's fainting. You're bitter. She's brooding. But don't be disenchanted, because you can barely stand it. The sweep and the grandeur, the scope and the laughter, the future, the future. The future's got it covered with what will be discovered. In the future, fun is fun. In the future, lots of sun. I'll be there. It's up to you. You'll be there if you don't do nothing foolish.' You'll love it. I know it. I know what you like, and you'll love it. I know it. We'll need some vintage vino, so wash your feet and stamp away. Coming soon and everywhere, everyone will walk on air. Now it seems so far away, but each day it's getting closer and closer. Convenience and pleasure, all blended together, and culture and madness. You think you've seen it all. You've seen it all except the future. And now let's listen to my chat with Eric Weiss about his take on Sparks.
4: I think that I was in high school and I was visiting a local neighborhood record store to probably buy Queen's Night at the Opera. And this was one of my first experiences where some knowledgeable professional suggested something to me that I never would have found on my own. And he pointed out Kimono, my house, which I bought. And fell in love with, and Sparks was um, you know riding a wave of success at that time. They were on Don Kirshner's Rock Hour, which was a TV show that was had live concerts. Um, and so I remember seeing them soon after, and they put on a spectacular show. And you got the whole Russell as prancing glamour model and Ron looking sinister at the piano, making all the faces that he's known for. So I think that cemented it.
3: But I wanted to find out about more in detail about when you first put the needle down on your first LP, Kimono My House?
4: You know, I was young and had not heard that much music, and I think I was weaned on top 40. So even the use of gunshots in this town ain't big enough for both of us um, really made me sit up and pay attention. The the level of production made me sit up and pay attention. The You know, the changes are actually quite interesting for pop music. I thought it was very advanced for pop music. So, yeah, hearing that... I'm pretty sure it had a lyric sheet. Russell is hard to understand until you tune into his voice. So um, having a lyric sheet with in My House helped. And uh, I did have – the the drummer in my band at the time also became a Sparks fan. So we could bounce excitement off of each other about that. But yeah, I was was, um, intrigued by the production, uh, intrigued by the strange takes on things, the sexiness of the songs, you know, which to a – High school student is kind of, you know, you're trying to get as many clues as you can. So Amateur Hour is kind of a good example of that kind of music. So, yeah, I mean, everything about it, the lyrics, production, the non-traditional pop music, um, and then, you know, complementing that with seeing them on Don Kirshner or other live concerts. I don't remember what other TV shows they were on, but probably on other, other shows at that time. I think Sparks take you know takes some commitment. It takes a sit down and listening, and probably having a lyric sheet because, like, I don't know what. I mean, I feel like Russell has an accent, but you know he's from LA, so he doesn't. And yet, but there is this way you have to learn to hear what he's saying, and you can still miss it. I mean, I, those early albums they do come fast, and uh, it takes some work. Yeah, I, I find that his stage persona is always very upbeat and positive. You know, he's never one for broodiness on stage. It seems that it's always positive and up and energetic. Um, And sometimes there's a slight bit of bewilderment or naivete that comes through in him, but just so positive. You know, like there's not a, there's not really a cynical bone in his body. Like Ron got all those, <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah, so he's he's a fantastic showman. I can't really think of a thing he does that is his own shtick. You know, like Freddie Mercury was always pulling the top of the mic stand out and playing with that. And that's that's he owned that. And I don't really think Russell has a trademark like that. But um, yeah, he's a great showman.
3: Russell has an athleticism. Sometimes he's sort of jogging. Sometimes he's kind of boxing. Sometimes he's, you know, air fisting, uh, <laughs> fist pumping. <laughs> he, he's a ball of energy and he's always positive, as you say. Um, and, and then there's Ron. He, he seems like he's all business. He's relatively unemotive while Russell is just bouncing off the ceiling. And then at some point in every concert, Ron, who is almost 70, gets up and does this sort of, it's called the Ron shuffle. And it's sort of a a dance move, but the way he does it is like, you know, maniacally smiling uh, puppet or something Mm -hmm. Um, because he's, he's famous for not smiling. So when he smiles, he makes a big point of it.
4: I was a member of the fan club. I do remember now. I've forgotten I probably still have all those mailings because I am a pack rat quarterly or something
3: you would get a thing in the mail. You may remember the the name of the woman who was secretary of their of the fan club. do you
4: I remember it was it may have been Mary Mackey or something like that, or Mary something. Mary
3: Martin Martin which was a fake name uh-huh. that that was Ron and Russell's mother. <laughs> And if you ever corresponded and got a note or something as I did many times, you you got a note from Russell and Ron's mom.
4: That's amazing. I knew this I knew this interview was worth doing for something, and that that's that's the nugget that I <laughs> like we may do better, but that's pretty remarkable. Huh. To Sparks I would say they are one of the very few bands whose lyrics are so embedded in my thinking that it helps me interpret my world. You know, I mean, that's a bit of a cliche, but there are, you know, there are, there are bands who like Talking Heads at some points in their career have been one of those bands. Sparks is one of those bands. Uh, the Magnetic Fields is one of those bands. John Darnielle and Mountain Goats are also one of those bands. Um, some bands are that way for me for the music. The music is so deeply inside me that it'll it'll always be there. I mean, I feel like I have strong alliances, and this is a very big change, but I have a, a strong alliance to the Klesmatics. partly for their lyrics, but just partly for the exuberance of their playing and the intelligence of their playing. And so I, that's a band I would go to the mat for. And so it's it's not quite the same, but they're, they're on my A-list. Um, but the, the bands who, or musicians whose lyrics... They just, they fit situations I'm in and they may not solve my problem, but they give me an angle into ways I think about things. And so I would say thank you to Ron and Russell for providing that to me. If nothing else, just the recognition that, you know, there is a way that most people look at things and that you can always circle around and find very different ways of looking at things that can be instructive or just hilarious or surreal. And so I think I thank them for that, and I thank them for the 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 unusual musical phrasings that you'll find on say propaganda. It just seems very uncommon in rock and roll pop music um and so I didn't tell you this, but when i was when I was in high school and I was in a band, I played piano, so I wasn't a guitarist or a bass player or a drummer, and um you know the role models for piano players or keyboard players at that time. I mean, you had Elton John. You know, I stumbled out my way to the Guess Who and Burton Cummings because he was a pretty great, you know, sort of uh, post-Fats Domino piano player. So, he did some he did some interesting things and had a great voice, has a great voice still. And then there were the prog rock things that I couldn't do. Like, I was not going to be Keith Emerson. <laughs> I was not going to be uh, th- that kind of – I just wasn't good enough to do that. And so – Um, being able to play through pop bands that had a strong keyboard thing like I mean Ron's solos are sort of hysterical from that time like they might just like there's this whole glam rock thing with guitars and big drums and bass and they all stop and there's a beep boom, beep boom piano solo you know And that's kind of brilliant. But also just his, his playing, his melodies, the things that are going on in the background, I've always found that very inspiring. And I mean, here we are 30, 40 years later talking about that music. It's it's in me in a way that a lot of other bands aren't in me. So,
3: you know, that's, that's art. Sparks' next album in 1976, their sixth album called Big Beat, was the first of many that I must say, disappointed me. And I'm going to skip that album and the following album, the facetiously titled Introducing Sparks, moving on to their breakthrough 1979 disco album produced by Giorgio Moroder called Number One in Heaven. I was not a big disco fan, but I'll admit that several tracks on this album are quite satisfying, and this album became a benchmark in the development of the genre known as electronica, which later grew into synth-pop and into dance and trance and techno. Here's a portion of my favorite track from the album Number One in Heaven, a song called My Other Voice. Writer Harry Doherty in Melody Maker Magazine wrote, Number one in heaven is one of the most fascinating collections of contemporary music recorded this or any other year. The experimental mix of Marauder's wall of frenetic synthesizer sound and Sparks' sharp rock wit clicked, and the album is probably one of the best either one has produced. Here's about a half a minute from the more than seven minute long titular hit, This is the number one song in heaven. Why are you hearing it now, you ask? Maybe you're closer to here than you imagine. Maybe you're closer to here than you care to be. If you should die before you wake, if you should die while crossing the street, the song that you'll hear, I guarantee, it's number one, All Over Heaven. The number one song, All Over Heaven. 1980 had Sparks releasing another electronic album, produced by Giorgio Moroder and Harold Faltermeyer, called Terminal Jive. It wasn't the album for me. Sparks' 10th album in 1981 was called Whomp That Sucker, an album that brought back fans who had left them albums ago and also gained them new fans, though I didn't like the album and didn't buy it at the time. Then came album 11. 1982's Angst in My Pants, or Angst in My Pants. Even if you're not a Sparks fan, perhaps you heard the title track used recently for an underwear commercial.
2: I hope it doesn't show, it'll go away. It's just a passing phase, it'll go away.
3: Two other standouts on this album are "Sextown USA, an apparent critique of American promiscuity, and Sherlock Holmes, about a man who wants to be the fabled fictional detective, even fantasizing about being able to sing and dance like Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) I don't know if we have any idea how Sherlock Holmes sang or danced, but this fellow wants to emulate Sherlock Holmes in every way. And in 1983, the next Sparks album, Sparks in Outer Space, came out. And uh, this brought the Mail Brothers their only moment on the U.S. Hot 100 music chart. They had a top 50 hit, Cool Places, which featured guest vocalist Jane Weedlin of the Go-Go's. In 1984, they released album number 13, Pulling Rabbits Out of a Hat, with a sweet highlight called With All My Might. In 1986, their new album was Music That You Can Dance To. I wasn't interested. And in 1988, Sparks released the first of their home-produced albums recorded in Russell's house in the Hollywood Hills in the home studio that he and Ron built. The album was called Interior Design, and this was another album that I skipped altogether at the time. And after this album, Sparks disappeared for five or so years. We found out later it was to work on a soundtrack for a film called My The Psychic Girl, Um If you look hard on the internet, you can find some songs, some demos of songs that were developed for that film, but the film was not, or has not yet been made. Then in 1994, Sparks returned to the pop music world with their 16th album, Gratuitous Sax and Senseless Violins. I want to play you just a bit of the track, Senseless Violins, now because it features rarely heard Ron Mail speaking the spoken word portions of the piece came home, and instead of hearing the usual drums and bass, he heard.
2: Violins, 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 senseless, violin, senseless, violin, senseless.
3: In 1997, Sparks released an album called Plagiarism, featuring totally new versions of some of their own songs from the past. I like the plagiarism version of Angst in My Pants better than the original 1982 version that I played for you earlier. Here's part of the plagiarism version of Angst in My Pants. As you can see, way more over the top, and I'd really go for that. Another track on the Plagiarism album that I like more than the original is called Change. And here is a short comparison starting out with the 1986 version and then switching to the 1997 Plagiarism version. I think you'll probably be able to tell when I switch over from one to the next.
0: Well, you can argue all day long about whether love really exists or not. It's a complete waste of time Like arguing about whether Santa Claus really exists or not Now I got better things to do with my time I got places that I've gotta be like arguing about whether Santa Claus really exists or not. I got better things to do with my time. I got places that I've got to be. And people
2: that I have to see.
3: Mountains
2: that I have to ski.
3: The next Sparks album in 2000 was called Balls and was released on Sparks' own record label, Little Beethoven Records. Though I didn't buy it at the time, now that I own it, I really like the tracks Balls, More Than a Sex Machine, and The Calm Before the Storm. In 2002, Sparks released an album that finally got me back to buying Sparks albums again, Little Beethoven, and The Independent called it a masterpiece of pop art. Record Collector Magazine called it a self-contained masterpiece. Mojo called it what the world's been waiting for. The Telegraph said it was one of the most extraordinary albums of the year. Q called it uniquely, brilliantly sparks. Daily Express called it an opus. Music Magazine called it Gilbert and Sullivan on Quaaludes. Tracks on Little Beethoven that I like the most include My Baby's Taking Me Home and What Are All These Bands So Angry About? The first of these songs repeats its title over and over and over with syncopated elegance. And the second song both ponders Spark's place in pop history and wonders why today's music is so angry. everybody what can we do crank it up just a notch or two hey everybody what can we do what are all these bands so angry about hey everybody they called our bluff our profane ain't profane enough hey everybody they called our bluff what are all these bands so angry about hey everybody what do you say someone's bounced us from center stage some might have done it but not today Beethoven, Coltrane, or Lady Day. Some might have done it, but not today, what with all these things besieging us now. Some might have done it, broken on through, Wagner, Tatum, or Howlin' Wolf. Some might have done what we'll never do. What are all these bands so angry about? Hey, everybody, what do you know? Something's stolen our thunder, Joe. Hey, everybody, what do you know? What are all these bands so angry about? Hey everybody,
2: what can we do?
3: 2006, the Sparks album Hello Young Lovers came out. New Music Express said, quote, Suppose Andrew Lloyd Webber decided to collaborate with Justin Hawkins of The Darkness. Now imagine if both of them were great. Unquote. The masterpiece of this album is a wonderful track called As I Sit Down to Play the Organ at the Notre Dame Cathedral. Here are some of the lyrics As I Sit Down to Play the Organ, at the Notre Dame Cathedral. You know you're going to be upstaged, again and again, you're going to be upstaged, upstaged by Him. Hallelujah! 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 I got a faith, I got a deep abiding faith, I got a faith, I got a deep abiding faith, that in that sea of faces, that sea of believing faces, there's always one face that's here to escape the rain. She is here from Japan. She is here from Milan. She is here, time on her hands. Bye, 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 my baby. Now it's time, time, time for me to go to work, 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 so you'd better finish up your beer. Bye, 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 my baby. Now it's time, time, time for me to go to work, 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 so you might want to make your way from here. And repeat.
0: sit down to play the organ at the Notre Dame Cathedral, as I sit down to play the organ at the Notre Dame Cathedral, you know you're gonna be upstaged, again and again, you know you're gonna be upstaged,
2: upstaged by him, Hallelujah.
0: Down to play the organ at the Notre Dame Cathedral. As I sit down to play the organ at the Notre Dame Cathedral, you know you're gonna be upstaged again and again. You know you're gonna be upstaged, upstaged by him.
3: Here's where Lori Cohen, director of the Mill Valley Philharmonic, comes in. I know Lori and I know she is well versed in classical music and that she plays jazz music herself, but I didn't know what her relationship to rock or pop was. And I asked if she would listen to a few Sparks tracks and chat with me about them so I could maybe get an insight into what Sparks music might sound like to somebody in the classical music realm. First, we talked about the piece you just heard as I sit down to play the organ at Notre Dame Cathedral.
5: I really loved this piece. I thought it was really hilarious, for one thing. Lyrically, musically, I just really loved the piece. They're really, really an interesting band. Lyrically, it has to do with this organ player who's fully ensconced in his church, in his cathedral, actually, in Notre Dame playing the organ, playing the organ, and then he gets attracted to this woman, it does go back and forth between playing the organ and his apartment. And there's a huge amount of vocal repetition (laughs) that... Some of which, like there's a lot of la, 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 and I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, la, 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 which is all about the organ, but it's also all about the orgasm. (laughs) So it just cracks me up, and there's like a lot of hallelujahs in there. I just think it's extremely funny, and there's also a a timpani in there, which kind of interests me.
3: You also mentioned something about the um, the organ riff that's repeated throughout. Oh, I love that.
5: There's this extreme fullness that they musically create on the organ when those notes, those rising notes, are all really close together, and when that's played on the organ, now the organ has a way of letting the ear hear every overtone. So when there's a kind of chromatic line that's played, the whole your whole ear fills up with vibration. And um, I just really like that part. I'm glad you reminded me of it.
3: Then I asked Lori to talk about the very end of This Town Ain't Big Enough for Both of Us when Russell hits that last, very high, triumphant note.
5: When you have all of this repeated minor, you get the minor really in your head.
3: It is. It's it really is than, a resolution.
5: Uh, yeah, It's a different kind of resolution. I think it's called a Picardy Third. I can't remember quite. So I just, you know, again, I think that Sparks has huge amount of humor to their music. And that's the takeaway for me. And, and it makes me enjoy it. I was completely unaware of Sparks. So this was a really great introduction. And I really enjoyed listening to them.
3: Sparks' 21st album was 2008's Exotic Creatures of the Deep. That's the one that they introduced in London at the end of their 21-album concert series. There are many good cuts on this album. Here is one of my favorite Spark songs of all time, called Lighten Up, Morrissey. It helps if you know that the recording artist Morrissey, a person with a pseudonym, is famously known as an intellectual wit, a vegetarian, and as a sensitive dandy the lyrics of lighten up Morrissey include, She won't go out with me. No, she won't go out with me cause my intellect's paper thin. She won't go out with me. No, she won't go out since my intellect's not like him. So lighten up Morrissey. She won't hang out with me. No, she won't hang out with me till my biting wit bites like his. She won't hang out with me. No, she won't hang out till my quick retorts quick as his. So lighten up Morrissey. She won't have sex with me. No, she won't have sex, less it's done with a pseudonym. She won't do sport with me. No, she won't do sport. Says it's way, way too masculine. Look at him. So lighten up, Morrissey. I've got comparisons coming out my ears, and she never can hit the pause. If only Morrissey weren't so Morrissey-esque, she might overlook all my flaws. So lighten up, Morrissey.
2: She won't go out with me, no She won't go out cause my intellect's paper thin She won't go out with me, no She won't go out cause my intellect's not like here So let
3: especially like that line, If only Morrissey weren't so Morrissey-esque, she might overlook all my flaws. Sparks' 22nd album was commissioned by Swedish radio and was called The Seduction of Ingmar Bergman, and it was an operetta about the famous Swedish film director's short visit to Hollywood and his quote-unquote escape back to Sweden. Here are a couple excerpts from The Seduction of Ingmar Bergman.
0: American Studio Swenson will translate for us, and I hope not add any zeroes in the process.
3: Twenty-three for Sparks was their live album called Two Hands One Mouth it was just the two of them without other musicians, two hands referring to Ron on the keyboards one mouth refers to of course Russell as the vocalist and as you know
0: this tour is called Two Hands and One Mouth and Ron wrote a song to commemorate the event. Two hands, one mouth. That's all I need. That's all I need to satisfy you. Two hands, one mouth. That's all I need That's all I need To satisfy you you say that you are down with that and I could see you're down with that a clown could tell you're down with that a clown who's upside down with that So why should I extend myself? No reason to extend myself Pretend that she's on a Hallelujah Tonight Pretend that she's on a challenging tonight You say that you are down with that and I could see you're down with that a clown could tell down with that, a cloud who's upside down with that So why should I extend myself? No reason to extend myself Pretend that she's Anna karina tonight Pretend that she's Anna karina tonight Two hands, one mouth That's all I need That's all I need To satisfy you Two hands, one mouth. That's all I need. That's all I need to satisfy you.
3: Album twenty-four wasn't really technically a Sparks album. It was made by a group called FFS, which stands for Franz Ferdinand Sparks. It was a so-called super group when Franz Ferdinand and Sparks teamed together for this album. It has some good tracks on it, but I'm not going to play any of them because technically, even though it sounds like a Sparks album in many ways, it's not a Sparks album. So I'm going to skip that one. And that brings us to Their brand new album, Album number 25, came out September 8th, 2017 in the United States. The album is called Hippopotamus. I'm excited about it, but I'm wary as I am before playing any Sparks album for the first time. Uh, Because even though I consider Sparks one of the most important bands in the history of pop music, no less, I never know if I'm going to like a new album of theirs. And I wanted to make and release this homage to Sparks on the eve of their newest album, full of the kind of excitement that Sparks has always engendered. Because Sparks is touring now with Hippopotamus, I'm going to be seeing them next month at the end of October when they come to San Francisco. And I've been requesting an interview with Ron and Russell for the last eight years, ever since I started this podcast, bugging their management every time I'm going to make a trip down to Los Angeles for a Sparks concert or when Sparks makes an all-too-rare appearance in San Francisco. Thus far, I've been unsuccessful, but I keep trying. And so now, as promised, I bring you part one of my interview with Ron and Russell Mail. Ron and Russell, welcome to Andy's Treasure Trove. Right off the bat, I'd like to sincerely and publicly thank you for the 43 years of interest and pleasure that your music has given me, and to congratulate you on a career that, over the span of more than 50 years, has really shifted the culture and even the paradigm of pop music. Insert comment here. I'd like to ask you about your 2015 music video called Christmas Without a Prayer, which I really love. The melody is enchantingly poignant and the humor is as wry as ever. I'd like to hear about the inception and the making of that video, which appears to have been shot by you personally, one sunny Sunday in what looks like Beverly Hills. Insert answer here. I know that you've worked with Guy Madden, who I interviewed on episode 10 of Andy's Treasure Trove about the silent film festival in San Francisco. And uh, you provided a song for his film, The Forbidden Room, called The Final Derriere, about a man obsessed with uh, bottoms, shall we say, who receives repeated lobotomies to try to rid himself of this obsession. The lyric calls it getting, quote, a little more off the top, every time he goes back to the surgeon, only to hit the street again and again and again become transfixed by a stranger's ass. The man is played by the likable character actor Udo Kier. When I wrote to Guy Madden to request a second interview, this time about Sparks, he very kindly replied in a way that was gushing about you both and how much he admires you, but saying that he's not doing any public speaking these days. I think he's a great filmmaker, too, and he's one of the best interviews I've ever done. My question to you, do you have another collaboration with Guy Madden in mind, or maybe something actually currently in the works with him? Insert answer here. Ron and Russell, I love the theme song that you wrote and recorded for the public radio show, Bookworm, and I have a big favor to ask of you. Would you consider creating a theme song for Andy's Treasure Trove? May I commission you to create such a theme? You don't have to answer right now. Think about it. I have a backup favor to ask that's much smaller. (laughs) Can you please say, this is Ron Mail of Sparks, and this is Russell Mail of Sparks, and we're on Andy's Treasure Trove? Insert answer here. Well, this is a very specific and very detailed question. First of all, do you remember Ron's costume change and subsequent performance for the encore of your second Santa Monica Civic Auditorium concert in 1974. I ask because I've never seen it written about, and it was a brilliant example of the kind of eccentric performance pieces that you're famous for, Ron, and today it might not be seen as politically correct. Insert answer here. Another reason I bring this up is that right after that concert, I was standing in the parking lot, near the stage door with a big group of other Sparks fans. And by the way, that was the first time I'd ever stood outside a stage door waiting for a band. Well, we waited there a while, and a man in a suit came out of the building and made his way through the crowd while peeling off his backstage pass. And then, right when he walked past me, he slapped that pass onto the front of my shirt and kept on walking. Holy Toledo. What could I do? I was 18. This was my second rock concert like I was approaching Checkpoint Charlie with fake documents. I held my breath as the security guard at the stage door looked at my chest and nodded me in. And I made my way to a small room filled with about 25 fashionable people, a few years older than myself, chatting festively. And then I spotted you, Russell, in the center of the group, getting praise and support from your friends crowding around you. I was so self-conscious about not belonging there that I moved away from the center of things towards the back of the room, which had a dark hallway leading away from it. When I turned my gaze from the room to the hallway, I immediately recognized the silhouette of you, Ron, coming down the hall right towards me. When you got to where I was standing, I pressed myself against the wall behind me to make room for you to pass. As you came into the light of the room, the others realized you were there and gave you some cheers and applause, and you stopped right in front of me, smiling and making appreciative gestures to your friends." The right side of your face was about 12 inches from mine, and I noticed that a tiny patch of skin on your ear still had a trace of that special makeup that you put on for the encore of the concert. I hope this doesn't sound too creepy, but I really treasure that moment and that detail, and I'm glad that I can share it with you 43 years later. Insert comment here. I'll bring our conversation to a close by quoting a letter from you, Ron, to the New Yorker magazine in 2000, responding to an article about Amy Mann, written by Nick Hornby. He wrote, In his article on Amy Mann, Nick Hornby cites my comment in Mojo magazine that quality pop music is among the dearly departed, and suggests that it is refuted by Mann's music. Unfortunately, his description of her music as, quote, Wonderful Beatles-tinged pop rock with, quote, sinuous Bert Bacharach-like melodies, unquote, show that ancient history, at least in pop music years, must be invoked to describe the current state of affairs. The music is, if not as dead as Prokofiev, at least living in the past. Having been in the pop band Sparks since the early 1970s, I feel that pop is every bit as substantial a musical form as classical music or jazz, and that it can convey musical and lyrical ideas that other forms of music cannot. Hornby says that nobody sees pop music as a tool of the revolution. No one expects it to change the world. Well, I do. Incidentally, Hornby calls Sparks, quote, slightly annoying. I've always felt that we were extremely annoying. Ron Mail Ron, I've heard you say before that you take pop music very seriously, and I agree with you. Insert comment here. Well, listeners, hopefully part two of this interview will actually be provided by Sparks. So let's all cross our fingers that they'll write me up a theme song or record a station ID. We're on Andy's Treasure Trove snippet. Or maybe they'll have a five-minute sit-down chat with me next month here in San Francisco while they're here to perform their new album. I'll be contacting their management to ask. (laughs) Okay, thanks. I want to thank not only Ron and Russell Mail, but also Tosh Berman, Eric Theis, and Laurie Cohen for participating in this episode of Andy's Treasure Trove. Thanks also to Sue at Republic Media for granting me permission to play the music excerpts featured on this episode. Most of all, I'd like to thank all of you for listening and ask you to visit TreasureTrove.com, send me some feedback, or leave a message on my listener call-in line. And more importantly than anything else, please share this program far and wide on all your social networks. I really appreciate it. That's all for now. To take us out, here's a bit of This Town Ain't Big Enough for the both of us, this time backwards. Happy Hippopotamus!
2: I'm a big and get I'm a big and small, I'm a You've got me you